Hey, it's Dr. Jamie, and I want to personally thank Keto Brick, sponsor of today's Fit and Fabulous podcast. The Keto Brick is a 1,000-calorie shelf-stable ketogenic meal replacement bar with perfect ketogenic macros. It was developed by Robert Sykes, the keto savage, during his competition prep to optimize his nutritional demands and streamline his meal prep. Robert and his wife, Crystal, have since created a business out of the bricks and keep the entire production in-house to oversee quality control. The bricks are made with only the highest quality of ingredients, such as raw organic cacao butter, the best source for stearic acid. The bricks are incredibly versatile and can be portioned out according to your individual macronutrient and caloric needs. Each brick contains minimal dietary carbohydrates, so you can consume them with confidence, knowing that they will not hinder your fat adaptation, but rather improve your ketogenic nutrition. You can get yours today at www.ketobrick.com and use the code DRFIT, D-R-F-I-T, to be entered into a chance to win a free one-week supply of Keto Bricks. That's right, a one-week supply of Keto Bricks. Four winners will be chosen every single month that this podcast is sponsored. Thank you, Keto Brick. to the Fit and Fabulous podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. It's so good to have you back with us, and we are so thankful and grateful for every time you guys download an episode, when you leave us your reviews, when you share these topics with your family and friends, you're, you're getting this information out there to people that might find it interesting or it might help them a lot. So super excited to have today's guest here, Dr. Josh Dalkey. Welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Pleasure's mine. So I get to work alongside Dr. Dalkey here in my community. He currently practices maternal fetal medicine at Nebraska Methodist Women's Hospital and Perinatal Center here in Omaha, Nebraska. He's board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and maternal fetal medicine. He received his medical degree from the University of Nebraska College of Medicine in 2003 and was a recipient of the U.S. Navy Healthcare Professional Scholarship Program. While in the Navy, Dr. Dalkey completed his OBGYN internship and residency at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego, California. He served as general medical officer in Okinawa, Japan, and as a general obstetrician gynecologist at the Naval Medical Center in Portsmouth, Virginia. During his time, he twice received the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal for his service then completed his MFM fellowship at Women and Infants Hospital of Rhode Island, Warren Alpert Medical School, and Brown University in Providence. He has a lot of research interests, and you guys, he's really well published. He has authored, co-authored 35 peer-reviewed articles to date. We're going to talk about one of those today here in the semen analysis. And you guys, he's an amazing mentor. Like I said, I got to train alongside him when I was in residency. He was on staff um, here in my town, and he is an incredible doctor, an incredible human. He's a father. He wears a lot of different hats. So Dr. Dalkey, thanks for having uh, the time to come spend with us today. I appreciate it. Couldn't have written it better myself. (laughs) Okay. Can you tell, I know there's somebody listening that has no idea what an MFM or a perinatologist is. Can you tell exactly people like what you do? Sure. So um, obstetrics and gynecology is a residency program that you do after medical school, typical uh, deliver babies, do GYN type of surgery. Um, And then there's subspecialists um, that uh, require additional training, some um, subspecialties, including uh, reproductive endocrinology, infertility, 
GYN oncology and then maternal fetal medicine, which basically takes all of the GYN um, surgery out of um, our specialty and focuses on the high risk portions of pregnancy. So it's obstetrics only. We don't see any patients outside of pregnancy. Did you know you wanted to be an OBGYN or MFM or like where did that happen along your journey? Well, it, it happened pretty early for me. Um, I had an inkling that I wanted to do a subspecialty. And then um, as you kind of move through, um, as you know, you do different rotations with the different subspecialists. And um, for me, it was both the combination of the work and um, I think a lot of um, a lot of medical training and residency training is finding mentors. And um, I tended to gravitate toward the personality types and individuals who are in maternal fetal medicine. And I really felt that was a a really good fit for me um, personally um, and just went with it and couldn't be happier with the decision. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about MFM for a little while. So basically for everybody listening, just to recap that you go to undergraduate, then you go to medical school for four years, then you match into an OBGYN residency program, which, you know, Josh and I both did. And then he went on to do fellowship, some more advanced training in high risk obstetrics. So he no longer does the gynecology portion seeing people for annual exams and doing pap smears, which I'm sure he's probably happy about. <laughs> and um, it's not the most like thrilling part of our job. Um, and But he does do hysterectomies, like cesarean hysterectomies, yeah. but not for, for gynecology reasons. And so, and then MFM, not all jobs, you know, across the country are the same. Like there's some that are more consultant based and some where you actually deliver babies and you do all the things. Yeah. Our practice is set up to do the full scope of, of high risk obstetrics. Um, there's a bit of a movement, and it's kind of geographic, to be honest, where on the coasts, um, maternal fetal medicine doctors are oftentimes um, office-based and consultative, consultative and um, primarily focus on the ultrasound aspects of, of pregnancy. Um, I think a unique and um, beneficial part of um, the setup here is that we still have uh, a very good footprint on the labor and delivery wards, and, and I think that's beneficial to both our, our group in the sense of building relationships with consultant, consulting docs and, and patients, but um, also kind of um, promotes um, quality uh, across the board. So I think it's a unique setup that we have in Omaha. Um, MFM is a small world, and so I have friends in all parts of the country, and um, I really feel like we have something special here. Yeah. Um, I'm appreciative of that. I mean, I'm a little biased, but I, the, the group that Dr. Dalkey works in here in our town is incredible. And what's so cool is that he works physically in one of the hospitals where I deliver babies. And so for a woman or a patient of mine that might develop some sort of high risk condition that really needs, um, you know, we need help from the perinatologist, we can really co-manage a lot of these patients and it still will allow a patient to be delivered by their own doctor and to have just you know, kind of this co-managed symbiotic relationship and it's better for, it's better for the patients in the long run. It's, um, I, I love the setup that we have, but of course, yeah, I'm a little biased. Um, tell us about some of the research you've co-authored a lot of research. Tell us about what kind of your interests were during your training or things that you've, you've participated in. Yeah, it, it, uh, it wasn't really the, the plan to, to do much research, just probably whatever was required to get through the process (laughs) initially. Um, but, um, as, as again, you go through and, and you um, kind of become curious and um, fellowship's kind of an opportunity where um, a good portion of your time um, is set aside and dedicated toward research endeavors. So 
that um, I I feel like I kind of took to and, and had some really good people at Brown to to mentor me through the way. So by far, it was the most productive time research wise during fellowship. Um, and then uh, we've managed to do a little bit um, here in private practice as well, which is a little bit um, uncommon, I would say. Um, but um, the the environment allows allows for that too. So uh, again, another reason why I'm fortunate to be where I'm at. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so we um, we asked Instagram what questions they wanted answered from from the MFM, from the perinatologist. So let's start with one of the most common questions that I received, and that was advanced maternal age, or as ICD-10 calls it, elderly, multigravita, or prima gravita. <laughs> so basically, this is a woman who um, is is pregnant essentially after the age of 35. But women were asking, like, what really is the risk of being pregnant at age 30, 40, 45? Like, is there an upper limit? Like, what do you, what would you tell these patients? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question, actually, and something that um, is actually a big part of our practice and because of the, the different surveillance that we recommend for moms who are um, of a certain age. And so why, why is it 35? Um, when you look at research and, um, as researchers, it's easy to compare two groups. So what's the risk if you compare 20-year-olds, less than 20 versus over 20, less than 25 versus over mm-hmm. 25? Once you get to age 35, you start seeing some differences. And so that's where it comes from. And um, the primary differences are um, twofold. One is a risk of uh, growth restriction. So the placenta might not function as optimally. And so we monitor baby's growth or recommend monitoring baby's growth through that time period. Um, And then um, also there's a slightly higher risk of stillbirth, which um, that's kind of a hard number to to get to. Um, But um, we think that uh, moms who are 35 or older, and it it goes up with age, so if you compare less than 40, greater than 40, um, the stillbirth risk is higher in those that are in that older group. Um, Now, that doesn't mean your baby's going to die if you're 40 years old. But if I say you have a twofold risk, um, that sounds kind of scary. But the overall numbers, thankfully, are, are low. So right. we changed the baseline risk of being pregnant about 1 in 1,300 um, pregnancies and, uh, in a stillbirth. And, and if you double that, it's 2 per 1,300. So it's still an overall low risk um, complication, thankfully. Um, but it's enough to where we uh, do recommend more surveillance in the pregnancy with ultrasound and fluid checks and, and things like that. Do you think some of it has to do with the woman's underlying health? I mean, if you had somebody that had perfect metabolic markers, normal BMI, you know, at age 40 and she was able to get pregnant versus we see people younger than age 35 that are obese, diabetic, chronic hypertensive, like, do you think a lot of it has to do with their underlying health or is it just strictly age? Yeah, and that's kind of the the hard part of, of teasing out and controlling for all those factors when you look at the, the data. Um, I would say that um, in and of itself, it's it's likely a uh, at least uh, some type of risk factor, um, age age alone. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're 40 and you had um, like donor egg or some type of infertility treatment, that's a different kind of equation. But in general, I would say um, age itself is a is a risk factor. What is the oldest woman you've seen give birth? Uh, it your was career? in residency, and it was a, a physician, 
and um, she was 55. Okay. All right. You guys heard it. Um, okay. So um, another risk that people of advanced maternal age have is chromosome abnormalities. That's true. I didn't so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, as we get older, as you guys know, half the chromosomes come from the mom, half come from the dad, and they can get kind of sticky and there can be this non-disjunction and there are increased risk for chromosome problems. The most common one people hearing about is trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. Can you talk about the different screening methods? Because my guess is for people listening that depending on where they live in the country, they're offered a few different things or maybe only one thing. Can you and, a, a, you know, these new blood tests to look at gender, kind of like a hot new thing. Can you talk about what the difference is between a first trimester screen and newer testing, which is non-invasive prenatal testing? Yeah. And so if you come to our office um, early on, one of the a big portion of our, our clinic is um, aneuploidy or chromosome abnormality screening. So uh, we basically recommend things um, based on one's baseline risk. And, and as we talked about before, that is age-related. So just to maybe put some more numbers out there, if you're 20, um, your risk of having a baby with Down syndrome is the same for all 20-year-olds, and that's about 1 in 1,400. Uh, when you get to age 35, um, that risk approximates 1 in 300. And so um, it kind of moves up exponentially as you get older. Uh, and, our, and our recommendation for screening is based on that. So um, when you're under the age of 35, probably the best screening is something called a first trimester screening, where uh, it's a combination of a couple of different um, blood tests and then an ultrasound that measures the fetal neck thickness and um, put that into the machine. And um, once the, the results come back, it, it uh, adjusts your age-related risk. And so... Uh, I think this is very important because um, oftentimes we say uh, your test was negative or your um, it was mm-hmm. positive, and it's important to understand it was what normal, a, yeah, it was abnormal. What a screening test is, and and that is not making the diagnosis at all. So in order to diagnose uh, your pregnancy with any of these chromosomal conditions, that requires an invasive test, depending on uh, when when you're. What just how far along you yeah. are. It's yeah. either, um, a sample of the placental tissue or a sample of the amniotic fluid. Yeah. Um, and so the first trimester screen is going to be um, give, give you a number. So instead, if you're 25, uh, instead of a 1 in 800 risk, it's going to say 1 in 10,000 risk. Mm-hmm. Um, if it comes back positive. But it's never zero. Right. It's never zero. If it comes back positive, usually it's kind of lab dependent, but um, oftentimes if the if the hormones and the neck thickness change your risk to something um, more than one in 200, it's going to come up positive, but the result will give us that number. And so um, sometimes we see a one in uh, 150, or we could see a one in five or something like that. So um, it's important to interp- have, have the ability to interpret those tests and describe to the patients what, um, what, all, what it all means. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a fan of first trimester screen, too, because there's other information that we can get from it. So even just babies with thickened nuchal translucency have have increased risk of things in pregnancy. Um, It allows us to do a first trimester ultrasound, which can confirm, you know, dating, singleton pregnancy, those types of things. But non-invasive prenatal testing seems to be very popular. What what is it good for? Yeah, so... um, Sure. Towards your face. (laughs) Um, so, um, the non-invasive prenatal testing, um, there's a bunch of different acronyms for that, but, 
that is a blood test, a single blood test that um, is around the same time in the uh, end of the first trimester. Um, it's actually um, separating out um, fetal DNA um, that's circulating in it's like mom's baby's DNA is circulating around in mom's bloodstream. Is kind of mind blowing. Totally right? mind blowing. <laughs> totally mind blowing. Um, and so, not only can uh, we identify that now, but then we can uh, run a number of uh, separate tests to determine. Um, whether or not there's extra bits of chromosome 21 or extra bits of chromosome 18 or 13 or, or the things that we're screening for. And uh, so in essence, we're actually testing fetal cells. Um, and so uh, the technology itself is, uh, as you can imagine, quite uh, extensive and there can be errors within that process. So we still consider it a screening test, meaning uh, if the test comes back, negative there's still a one in ten thousand chance that that could be wrong and then if the test comes back positive there's a still a possibility of a false positive and they actually give us that number in the mm -hmm. in the test results mm -hmm. so um it's a wonderful it's been a game changer to be honest because it is a very very good screening test um and if you're over the age of 35, it's probably the best screening test because, again, that baseline risk of 1 in 2 to 300, mm -hmm. um, you could, if you're 40, you could actually have a positive screen on the first trimester test um, and still have a um, lower age-related risk. So if your baseline risk is 1 in 100 and the test comes back and it says it's positive, but it's a 1 in 150 chance, right? Um, that doesn't necessarily help us. So. Right. That's kind of the thought process between uh, using the two different tests. Yeah, so it definitely plays a role. I was just listening um, a couple of weeks ago to somebody, this kind of technology that we're using with non-invasive prenatal testing, they are actually developing a blood test that looks at cancer yeah. screening. So literally you can draw your blood, you can kind of look for these like DNA fragments that, that would be produced by the cancers and they can actually screen for a variety of cancers this way. It's so, so, so early in the technology. But just so you guys know, um, it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's cool to think in you know 10, 15 years where we'll be with with some of that too. Um, okay, so you have children, correct? I do. More, yeah, more than one or two. How many? Uh, I have five kids. Five kids. Yeah. Okay, so he's he's not only an OBGYN MFM, but he's a dad too. Somebody asked advice for dads. What what can they do? How can they be helpful to their pregnant spouse? And how, I mean, what do you got for them? Anything? Tips, tricks? Wow. Okay. This is, this is a loaded one. Isn't it? <laughs> um, no, I would say um, from both personal experience and, and doing this every day um, that dad, dads or partners, um, I would say are um, wonderful advocates for their spouse or um, person who's pregnant. Um, I think um, being present is the most important thing uh, and supportive. Um, this is a this is a transformational process for your um, partner, and there's a lot that uh, it takes both physically but also emotionally to grow a human. And um, being there and supportive, um, and that can take on many different meanings. But um, to me, the simplest thing is just to be present and be. Um, with your with your partner during this time um, and the when complications arise and, and everything it makes it just escalates all of those um, those feelings and so 
Um, my advice would be to be present, um, be supportive, um, whatever they need to get through this transformational time is the, um, is, is what's needed. And for different people, that's different things, but, um, it's not going to happen if you're not present. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I have three children and you're right. There is this, like, I mean, physically your body is changing. It's, it can be almost terrifying sometimes to like watch what's physically happening with your body, mentally preparing yourself for parenthood. But of course your partner is not going through it, right? They're not feeling the baby kick. And then the baby comes out. And if you're a breastfeeding mom, you know, they don't get to support with the feeding a lot. So I know, you know, my husband and I, he was basically, I was in charge of feeding. He was in charge of diapers. Like the first week, like we just like set it out. We're like, okay, like you're going to change the diaper and then I'm going to feed. And like, we're both, you know, chipping in as much as we can. And, um, it, it's interesting. You and I both get to watch a lot of dynamics, mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, of, of different couples and partners and things like that. And, um, it can, it can make or break relationships too. I mean, parenting is a, it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And certainly there's, there's stress involved and, and it's a transformational life-changing, uh, experience every time it occurs. And so, um, being, being sensitive to, to all of those and, supportive and, and present and um, interested in, in um, moving things forward, I think yeah. is important. I love it. I love it. Okay. So um, uh, a topic, of course, near and dear to me, gestational diabetes. Um, talk to me about gestational diabetes in your practice. I'm starting to do a lot of innovative things using continuous glucose monitors, and, and I obviously kind of live and play in the low-carb space, but talk to us about gestational diabetes and risks for women developing gestational diabetes in pregnancy. It's okay. Siri wants to answer. <laughs> Siri, tell us about gestational diabetes. Uh, gestational diabetes. Okay, so um, pregnancy is an insulin resistant state. And so those that are pregnant are at Physiologically. Higher, physiologically. Right, yeah. uh, and so those that are pregnant have a higher risk for having um, abnormal blood sugars uh, or, uh, again, insulin not um, functioning as efficiently uh, in putting um, blood sugars where they should be in the tissues, et cetera. And so uh, universally we screen women um, around 24 to 28 weeks um, with a, a glucose test, um, kind of like a stress or, or a glucose load and determine how, how the body's using that. Um, if that screen, again, is positive, then we move on to a, um, a three-hour test where it includes a fasting, a one-hour, a two-hour, and a three-hour um, blood draw to determine the blood sugar. If two of those numbers are abnormal, um, you get the diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Um, that kind of puts you in a different category as far as monitoring your blood sugars daily. Um, we always offer kind of a dietary counseling and, and um, some, some information for them and then track their blood sugars, the remaining of the pregnancy, if they're able to maintain um, blood sugar goals with diet changes and activity alone, wonderful. And that happens, honestly, most of the time. Um, But sometimes if um, blood sugars that we review are um, above goal, then we would initiate uh, medication. And that would include a couple of different oral agents or insulin. And uh, depending on how they do, it gets escalated um, up from there. Somebody asked if Doing a 50 gram oral glucose tolerance test is 
is safe. They were like, isn't it dangerous to be consuming that much amount of sugar? Um, I think that it's, it's safe and it's, it's very, very well studied. And, and so I would always kind of um, revert back to, to that position if there's concerns um, that um, this is how uh, it's been done for a very, very long time. There's always, there's a lot of debate in, in the MFM world about the optimal test, whether it's a, a single um, one-hour test to follow by a three-hour test if that screen's positive or just to do a two-hour test um, that includes a fasting. Um, there's, there's some evolution in that way. If you're, if you're in Europe, you're probably going to have the two-hour right. test. Even um, parts of the U.S., I think people right. are using and, it. And so there is a little bit of um, change in, in um, lack of uniformity as far as the, the actual test. Um, but as far as safety, I, I think that it's, um, I would be comfortable saying it's safe. What if somebody doesn't want to do the test and just wants to check their blood sugars with their diet? Is that a reasonable option? Has that been looked at? Or Yeah, I think that it's, that it's a reasonable option. Um, and there's um, plenty of cases where that's the optimal option. For example, in, uh, in patients who have had bariatric surgery or have a hard time um, taking in that amount of glucose uh, instead of doing a big load that can, they can then have complications related to their bariatric surgery. Um, we'll just offer to have them test fasting and two hour after meal blood sugars for a while and, and see where they're at. So yeah. I think it is a, uh, a feasible way. Yeah. And now a quick word from our sponsor, That's It. That's It makes delicious, convenient super snacks from only the purest ingredients. If you're looking for a quick snack for yourself or your kiddos that's all natural, non-GMO, and preservative-free, you have got to try these products. In my house, we love the apple and mango flavor, but really, they're all delicious. These snacks are school safe, and they're completely free from the top 12 allergens. They're so perfect for busy families with simple, recognizable ingredients in portable, convenient formats. You can find That's It products nationwide at your Starbucks, at major retailers such as Target, Walmart, Whole Foods, and Costco. You can even find them online at Amazon and at thatsitfruit.com. If you head over to thatsitfruit.com backslash Dr. Fit and you use my code Dr. Fit, that's D-R-F-I-T, you'll get 20% off your first order. Go ahead and check it out. Um, I... Definitely something I offer because I take care of some women that are already limiting added sugars and things like that. And in those patients, they're actually more likely to fail the test. Not really, they don't really have gestational diabetes, but they can sometimes, their their pancreas isn't used to a 50 gram load. And so sometimes they can, you can get a false positive and then we check the blood sugars and they're normal. Right. So sometimes in those situations, testing it, the blood sugars is just better for them. Yeah. Nobody fails anything and they're growing a human. <laughs> Amen. You, you scream positive. Are you sure? Because one of my glucolas is over 200. <laughs> you scream positive. Um, but I, I, it's one of my like little idiosyncrasies. Yeah. I think that um, it's hard to say that you're failing at anything if right. you're growing a baby. Right. So it's you can a, scream positive for things. It, it is an better. incredible feat. It is an incredible feat. Okay, um, I had a couple of people ask about postpartum hemorrhage and uterine acne. So uh, essentially, for those listening, there's many reasons why a woman might lose an excessive amount of blood after delivery, and uterine acne is basically where the uterus as a muscle is uh, 
some people say lazy, but well, that sounds like failure. That failure. sounds like failure. <laughs> it's not contracting. It's not squeezing down like it's supposed to. And a woman is losing excessive amount of blood. What are the risks for people who have had a hemorrhage in the past and subsequent pregnancies, especially something like uterine acne? Somebody was basically specific, specifically asking, like, is there something I can do? Yeah. Um, and so this is kind of a mantra in medicine in general, but if you have a history of something, there's a higher chance uh, that it could recur again in a future experience. And um, what that risk is, again, has uh, a lot of different factors. But in general, you can say that your risk is higher if you've experienced something in the past. Um, that said, um, there's a lot of different variables that come into play um, and a lot of different risk factors that can put someone at risk for, for hemorrhage. And in particular, um, if it's due to, to acne. Uh, and so it's certainly not a guarantee that it's going to happen again. Um, specifically, um, if there if there's a um, is there anything that one can do? Um, I would say that probably the the biggest risk factors are things like um, the length of labor, um, uh, intrauterine infection during labor, um, prolonged rupture of membranes, having a big baby which you don't really have control over. So a lot of the the big risk factors um, aren't anything that can be modified necessarily. So um, the the biggest thing I would say is um, if you have that history to um, to, to have everything prepared and deliver in, in a place case, that's ready. Yeah, yeah. And in case it does happen, and there's certain medications that we can use and um, monitoring that we can um, do postpartum to to minimize the risk of excessive bleeding. But um, it's certainly scary when that occurs and oftentimes traumatic to the, to moms. Um, and so anything we can do to, to help mitigate that, if nothing else, to reassure uh, the mom that um, while you had this before, it's likely um, that it won't happen again, even though you're at a little higher risk compared to someone who that didn't happen to. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think worldwide hemorrhage is still the number one reason for morbidity and mortality in pregnant women. Yeah. Between um, blood clots and, and hemorrhage, um, those are the those are the big ones. Mm-hmm. But in the U.S., we definitely see more thrombophilia and preeclampsia, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. we're yeah, better at treating hemorrhage. Yeah. We're not like out right. in the the middle of the woods delivering babies like in some third world countries. Um, okay. <clears throat> Talk on kind of the same thing with, uh, with hemorrhage. If a woman's had placenta previa or abruption was also the question, what's the risk of recurrent previa or what are risk factors, I guess. So if people don't know what previa is to tell them what that is. Sure. So placenta previa uh, is a condition where the placenta uh, very early in the pregnancy, it implants into the uterine wall, and that's kind of the interface between um, baby and mom and how baby gets all the nutrition and oxygen it needs to, to grow in utero. That placenta um, kind of randomly attaches to wherever it, it does in the uterus. If it attaches in the lower part of the uterus, um, it can sometimes um, cover the cervix, which the cervix is the part of uh, the unit that, that dilates and becomes the birth canal for baby. So if there's a placenta that's very, very, very vascular. Problem. <laughs> um, and it's near the, the opening, the cervix, then um, complications such as massive hemorrhage can occur. And so in those situations, um, unfortunately, it's not feasible to have a vaginal birth. Uh, and so um, that would be an indication to do 
a C-section um, for the simple fact that if a, if a cervix starts to dilate in an area that's highly, highly um, um, filled with, with blood, then, then you can have really life-threatening hemorrhage. So, um, and we would recommend doing that um, cesarean prior to labor. And so oftentimes we, we plan for those things around 36 and oftentimes 37 weeks, but not any further than that. Mm -hmm. So um, it does have implications. And again, that's not anything that, that we have control over, right? Right. Uh, and or so, a mom. I mean, or, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so risk factors for that. Some people have um, anatomic reasons. Um, the uterus, you know, sometimes there's uh, a unicorn, like one horn of the uterus or, or a bicornuate uterus. Um, if you've had, and this is kind of um, interesting, but if you've had prior cesareans, the more C-sections you have, the higher chance that that placenta is going to be Stick implanted lower. Um, and so those are probably the two biggest things, but most of the time it's, it's randomness. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about placental abruption? So premature separation of the placenta. Yeah. So um, again, the, the same kind of dynamic where the placenta is attached to the uterus um, a placental abruption is where a portion of that um, placenta separates um, off of the uterus um, too soon. And it, as you can imagine, that can also produce um, significant bleeding. There's degrees of abruption. There's um, kind of an acute life-threatening abruption that can be both life-threatening to mom and baby. Um, and then there's sometimes more of a chronic abruption where there's just a portion of that area that's separated uh, that can cause some longer-term bleeding, but overall um, baby and mom are, are not hemorrhaging to the point of needing to move toward delivery. And so um, that can be very complicated to tease out, and um, that's often a reason why moms are in the hospital mm -hmm. during their pregnancy um, to try to figure out where we are with that. And when it occurs also matters, right? If we have an abruption uh, or some bleeding at 24, 25, 26 weeks, that's very, very premature um, compared to, and, and we may be more willing to continue the pregnancy at that point compared to someone where this might occur at 34, 35, or 36 weeks. So, so obviously sometimes it's just bad luck and we don't know why these mm -hmm. things happen, but what would be risk, modifiable risk factors, I guess, for sure. abruption? So um, tobacco use, um, um, anything that um, increases blood pressure. So if you have chronic hypertension, um, there's um, any type of um, methamphetamine use or cocaine use is associated with abruption. Um, but again, those are, are exceptions, I would say, even though they, they are risk factors, most uh, most pregnant moms don't consume methamphetamines. Right. And so um, most of the time it's it's something that um, happens that we don't have a direct causal reason for. Yeah, it's pretty amazing sometimes. I mean, we deliver babies all day, but when you really think about like this embryo forming and implanting and like the maternal fetal interface, like it literally still blows my mind. A patient asked me the other day if it ever like wears off and I'm like, no, not really. Like sometimes when I just really start thinking about what I actually do for a living, like it's so freaking cool. It's the best. And it's, it's supremely humbling at the same time. Um, we think we uh, know a lot. We've gone to school forever to, to do what we're doing, but um, still at the end of the day, um, 
moms are growing babies and, and we're observers of, of these things. And uh, it's a very humbling and, and wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Okay. Um, another common question, VBACs, vaginal birth after cesarean section. You're hitting all my favorite uh, topics. I know. Um, I offer them in my practice after one or two prior sections, but can you tell people what the risks are associated with VBACs who are good candidates for a trial of labor? Yeah. So um, VBAC is a vaginal birth after cesarean. So in order to fit in this category, you have to have had um, a prior um, cesarean delivery. Um, and um, the biggest risk that we talk about is uh, something called uterine rupture. So uh, if you were to experience labor again, um, there is a small um, chance that during the process that that area that probably occurred at the time of cesarean um, is a a weaker area of the uterus. And so when the contractions occur, that area can um, separate or rupture. And again, this can be a a life-threatening thing, both for mom and baby, um, if this were to occur. And so um, that risk is about 0.7% in someone who's had one C-section. And so the question is, is is it feasible or is it um, is it safe to to labor after having um, an incision on your uterus? And this applies to not just a cesarean. So, some people who have had fibroid surgery right. um, that um, requires the removal of a fibroid that enters into the the um, endometrial canal, which becomes the um, kind of where baby grows. Um, that that's another risk factor for uterine too. So it's not just cesareans that we talk in these terms, but there's some other things too. Um, and so, so that's the biggest risk. Um, there's some certain medications that we use um, primarily in induction of labor that um, exponentially increases that risk for uterine rupture. And so we avoid those medications if an induction is to occur. Um, but generally, it's deemed safe. It certainly warrants um, a conversation um, and kind of an assessment of what people are comfortable as far as risks go. Um, but as long as you um, have a facility who, um, there's some kind of facility requirements, I, sh- I guess. Yeah, I was I just about say. to say, like, I mean, there are certain p- providers or hospitals that do not allow women to even attempt this. Correct. So, like, what is the logistics involved with? Uh, and, and that's primarily um, if a uterine rupture were to occur, a um, an emergent cesarean can be made possible. And so that's the biggest requirement. And what does that mean? That means that there's a, a person who can perform a C-section is, is present in the hospital at all times. Um, there's an anesthesiologist who's not having to drive in from town. So there's 24-7 anesthesia. There's um, fetal monitoring in the course of labor that um, can be used to, to determine this. So it's mostly kind of a um, resource management kind of thing. Smaller um, rural hospitals who um, only perform, you know, 10 or 15 deliveries a year don't have 24-7 right. uh, anesthesia in, in the house. So um, we actually get a lot of referrals from the rural towns to our practice to, for, for moms who mm-hmm. want to try to um, have a trial of labor. And we, we are very supportive of that. Yeah. What about more than two C-sections? It's a great question. So if you compare um, 
one versus two, we go from about 0.7 to maybe 0.1. Some studies will say 1.1 or 1% roughly. So it is higher after two. Um, the best data on like having a trial of labor after more than two is um, comes from Washington University in St. Louis. And they've, um, they've had a lot of data over the years and Probably um, there's not a magic number and number of cesareans that uh, it becomes absolutely contraindicated or not recommended, mm-hmm. um, but it certainly um, gives a lot of people heartburn if there's mm-hmm. two or more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean most hospitals, you know, don't quote allow it, but right. um, I've certainly gotten that consult before, and most of the time it's because a woman has um, lived in a location in the U.S. where it wasn't available. And so, you know, they were required to have a repeat C-section or had a baby that required, you know, delivery, you know, by that reason. So certainly there's people you've had a vaginal delivery for and then have a C-section. You're an awesome candidate because you have, you've had a baby through the birth canal, you know, we know a baby can fit. Um, Or sometimes people have had twins that required a C-section and now the next time they have a singleton. So there's definitely a lot of people out there who are excellent candidates, but Um, my two cents is, you know, make sure that you decrease your modifiable risk factors, like be healthy, do all the things you can just like you would and, um, and find a provider that's supportive. That's, that's a really big thing too. So, um, okay. Um, your next favorite topic, (laughs) preeclampsia. It's, I feel like it's so common. I feel like every time I turn around, there's just like preeclampsia everywhere. Yeah, tell people was, what it is. How do you get it? Sure. I was just on. How do you avoid it? That's actually what we were saying. Yeah. Preeclampsia is. If somebody says I had preeclampsia and help, it almost killed me and I was very healthy. Yes. Um, so again, everything is, um, th- there's risk factors. Um, probably the biggest risk factor for something like preeclampsia or help syndrome is being a first time pregnant mother. Um, and um, that is that is something that, again, is not modifiable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, every first-time um, pregnant person is at risk for preeclampsia compared to second, third, or fourth. Um, and so I think that's an important, important point. Um, certainly, if you have underlying high blood pressure um, prior to pregnancy, um, that also is a, a very large um, risk factor for developing preeclampsia and HELP syndrome. Uh, and that is um, partially modifiable, right? Um, and so those are probably the two two biggest things. What is preeclampsia? So preeclampsia, it, there's criteria for it. Um, it's kind of a checkbox in some ways. And so um, if you have... But it's um, a spectrum. I mean, it's, it, it certainly yeah. is. And, and uh, it can get complicated and, and has certainly has implications on timing of delivery if, if we don't put you in the right kind of category. Mm-hmm. Um but in general, preeclampsia is elevated blood pressure, and by that we defined it as 140 over 90, um, and it has to be um, over two periods of time, so at least four hours apart, you have to have documented blood pressures that high. And then there's um, an aspect of um, protein spilling in your urine, and so there's different tests for that. Sometimes it's a 24-hour collection of your urine to assess the total amount of uh, protein in your urine. There's also kind of a spot test that we're using more and more that um, correlates well with that longer test. And so those two things will, um, if those occur, then you have the diagnosis of preeclampsia.
times. Yeah. Um, there's severity types too. There's a uh, more severe featured one and a, and a non-severe feature uh, preeclampsia. And that uh, is primarily determined by um, blood tests that look at your kidney function, your liver function. Um, if you think of preeclampsia, it can basically affect every organ of one's body from um, the brain on down. So, um, and um, it can be, again, one of those life-threatening conditions that um, we take very seriously. Um, the good news is that um, preeclampsia is related to pregnancy. And so um, if you're not pregnant anymore, you, your preeclampsia will resolve. So there's always an answer of, um, of delivering your baby and then recovering from this condition. Um, it gets complicated when it occurs again in the preterm or premature uh, time frame. Right. And so um, it, it gets complicated. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so somebody who had preeclampsia and help, I mean, almost died, what's their chance of that happening again? Yeah, I would say that um, it depends on uh, when it occurred. And so we know that um, if this is something that occurred at term, the risk of that recurring is less than if it before 34 weeks or earlier on. And so um, the the risk of recurrence is kind of dependent on a lot of things, but um, it can recur up to 30 or 40% of the time if it was um, earlier on. Um, but again, that's not 100%. Um, and so it's certainly a, a conversation to have. And um, again, to your point, um, maximizing your health prior to pregnancy uh, is the, the most modifiable thing that you can do but understand that um that we think that um this occurs from um, a placenta and and how that placenta attaches very early on in pregnancy and so um there's not a ton of control that we can have over that process mm -hmm. i was really amazed when i um was going through some literature for a presentation i was doing i started uncovering all these studies with hyperinsulinemia i mean i was always taught that diabetics had an increased risk of preeclampsia, but I was mind blown looking at the studies, just strictly looking at hyperinsulinemia and risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And it, I mean, the data is like really good. I feel like nobody taught me that in yeah, residency. Yeah, in, um, and that's totally modifiable. Going back to the, the risk factors of gestational diabetes, probably the biggest one other than we always say you're going to grow your baby huge and all of that, but probably the biggest risk is that link between um, diabetes and preeclampsia. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, we can see them hand cousins. in hand sometimes yep. for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about how women deliver babies. Somebody said a PT said I should never give birth on my back. Of course, I think in America it's so, you know, most women are in dorsal lithotomy position because mm -hmm. mo most have epidurals and there's only, you know, so many things you can do if a woman has a really dense epidural, but mm -hmm. talk to me about your opinion on that. How should women deliver babies? Are they okay to be on their back? They are okay to be on their back. I think that um, this is certainly, if this is a, um, if this is a, not necessarily an issue, but this is, if this is a topic that is important to uh, the pregnant person, then I would um, highly advocate that uh, this is discussed prior to before the delivery. Yes, yeah. because at that point. Um, there's probably not much that's going to um, be able to be modified um, for their 
for their interests. So uh, number one is talk about this with your provider and figure out if, if that's the, if they're open to other positions. Mm-hmm. Um, to your point, um, when someone has an epidural um, position for, for um, pushing and, and um, giving birth is, is probably um, a little bit limited mm-hmm. because the, the positions that, that they can be in. I mean, I've seen women get on all fours with an epidural, but no, it's, it's <laughs> difficult. It's, it's a, yeah, it's an exercise for sure. So I think in particular in, in those cases, we may be a little bit limited, but certainly in someone who, who doesn't have uh, an epidural or is uh, wanting to have an unmedicated experience, um, maximizing positions that um, make sense at the, at the time and, and, um, and work for them for whatever period of time should be part of the, um, part of the process. And to be honest, in, um, we're probably not very good at that the way, um, other places might be mm-hmm. not just here, but just as a nation, I would right. say. Um, and, and so I think that's certainly an area where we can maybe, um, listen to our patients and learn from them. And, um, and, and that's going to be driven quite honestly by patients. Um, and so I would, this topic is, is something that is, is difficult to talk about sometimes, um, with providers, but if this is something that's important to moms, um, and how they, how they, what positions they have to deliver their baby, it's, it's an important thing to have, uh, important discussion to have prior to. And, our job is to pr- promote an environment where that's feasible. Mm-hmm. And um, when you're at a place where there's 20 to 30 babies born every day, um, it kind of becomes a bit of a, a grind, I guess you could say. And, and that's not necessarily a good thing when we're mm-hmm. trying to um, give moms the experience they're looking for. Yeah. I mean, I think I probably take care of, of the higher percentage of patients that – desired unmedicated, you know, deliveries and I'm open to all positions and, but I know a lot of providers just like really aren't. Do you think they're adverse because of lack of experience or is, I mean, what do you think it is? Um, I would, I, I'd hate, I hate to get into the heads of, of people, but yeah, um, it's probably a comfort level and experience yeah. level um, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I, I I learn a lot from my patients too. And I would, for birth in general, if you're a completely healthy patient, I mean, it's a physiologic process. And so I always say, listen, listen, I'm here to watch this amazing thing happen. But the reason I'm here is if something goes wrong, you know, that's what I'm here. I'm here for when something goes wrong. And so I, I just think it's such a cool opportunity. I mean, honestly, like to just sit there and watch a woman do it on her own. I mean, it's, yeah, it's super amazing. powerful. And I don't think I had that perspective until I had my three children. And my first one, I got an epidural because I had a straight occiput posterior baby and it was mm-hmm. this god awful labor. But my second two um, were completely unmedicated. And I don't think I had that appreciation. Obviously, we've never had a baby, but you've watched tons of women give birth. And um, it's, I think it's hard sometimes as obstetricians, we see so much pathology that it's hard to remember sometimes that there are normal, healthy, physiologic things happening every single day in front of us. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think this also, um, this is a discussion on, on how we train physicians uh, in this country too. And in my experience in the Navy and um, in fellowship, um, 
the, the integration of um, nurse midwives in the hospital mm-hmm. setting and uh, their involvement in teaching residents um, was was vital and yeah. a big part of training. And so um, I'm going to guess, again, assuming those that have been those that were trained in, in places where um, these different positions or, or different um, kind of um, monitoring in, in pregnancy was not fringe, but part of the whole process, mm-hmm. those people probably are going to be more comfortable with, with some of the different positions uh, in labor. Yeah, I thankfully trained at a place where we had midwives, got to participate um, in in the care of those patients, which I thought was extremely valuable. And now in my practice, we have midwives that are in our practice. And just like you and I get to have this amazing relationship with high-risk patients, um, sometimes they have patients that need a little bit, you know, of extra monitoring or whatnot. But from a birth perspective, you know, uh, I, I love our midwives and I love what they do, you know, for so many, for so many women. And that's a good fit for a lot of patients. So I totally agree with what Dr. Dahlke's saying. Talk to your provider about it way before the delivery room. Have these conversations about, you know, I, I think sometimes women don't think about it until the end, you know, right. or they just, they don't know, like they've never seen birth. They've never, um, they just, they don't know what to expect at all or even what questions to ask, you right. know, and, while they're in that moment. Um, and that's also, um, it, you know, if you have an experience, whether good or bad, the first time, um, to the questioner's point about health syndrome and everything too, even if, if you had minimal um, health problems, but didn't quite have the experience that you wanted. I think experience uh, is an outcome too, because um, as far as I know, moms take this experience uh, for the rest of their it's lives. It's a day they will talk about literally once a year and for the rest of their life. Absolutely. And, and that can't be minimized. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, is in and of itself probably an outcome measure um, that we tend to ignore. Uh, and so, um, but, but mom, moms don't ignore it. And so um, I think it's, it's a huge, huge um, topic that um, doesn't get discussed um, because, you know, we tend to focus on um, baby outcomes as we should. Um, but there's also a, an experiential aspect to all of this that, um, I think is equally um, equally important, and again, something that that moms take with them uh, yeah. for the rest of their life. And I think if we're not willing to sit down and have an open minded conversation about it as medical providers that provide obstetric services, we're seeing more women, you know, going to birth centers, having home births, people that probably shouldn't, but it's really just because nobody will listen to them and and what they you know want and. I think it has to be, you know, a back and forth conversation with your provider about what can we do to make this the safest possible and still have, you know, a good experience. Yeah. And I think there's, um, you know, there's pockets of, of the country that are, are more ahead of this discussion than, than others, but it's an important, um, important thing. And it's something that I think um, as experts, quote unquote, in this field, we should, we should embrace quite frankly. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. All right. So let's, um, let's pivot from extremely natural unmedicated birth back to C-sections <laughs> for a second. Sweet. So, um, uh, 
Dr. Dalkey, like I said, he's co-authored 35 different articles uh, on a variety of topics. And when I was in residency, we had to give a Grand Rounds presentation. So my chief year, I pulled this amazing article that Dr. Dalkey had actually published about um, basically an evidence-based C-section. So for those of you don't do C-sections like Dr. Dalkey and I do, there's there's lots of steps to doing the C-section. And so this kind of study broke down all these different steps to say, is there evidence for this? Or is this just something, you know, that we've just done it this way for a long time, so we continue to do it? Well, then I think fate would have it is that um, he published a second follow-up to his initial study called The Case for Standardizing Cesarean Delivery Technique. And um, I just want to go through this with you, Dr. Dalkey, and talk about an evidence-based C-section. Oh, because we have another hour. No, (laughs) no, the semen analysis is five minutes Um, because somebody asked um, and I get patients that come into my office and ask this about gentle cesarean. Mm -hmm. What's your definition of gentle cesarean? Well, I would say that there is a because I think we're talking about this birth experience. Like I think when a patient, when those words come out of a patient's mouth. They, they're really talking about a birth experience. A birth experience. That's correct. I, I think. Uh, and from, um, and in general, the, the gentle cesarean that's been described in, in studies and, 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 you know, advertised as available um, is mostly kind of a, an environmental um, mm-hmm. shift from the sterile bright light um, OR scenario to making it more conducive to having an experience um, for birth. And that includes lighting, music, um, quiet speaking. Um, the, maybe the biggest thing that's different is is um, the ability to have like a drape or, or some way for, for mom to, drape to, or see, some way to be the baby. Uh, see the birth happening. Um, all of that in my mind and how I would define a, a gentle cesarean are those types of things the, the the process of the surgery itself um, is probably it would, be, it would be a stretch to define uh, any type of major abdominal surgery as gentle, right? And so um, we can kind of ha ha that, but I think the the point of a general or uh, a gentle cesarean is is a welcome conversation and something that I think um, from a a risk standpoint or anything, it, it kind of refocuses the attention of the experience to the mom, which is exactly where it should be. And so from my perspective, anything we can do to, to do that safely should be encouraged. And again, something that should be discussed early on as something that if they're, if someone's interested in that experience to, to really advocate for themselves to yeah. do it, it's not necessarily a, a stretch for the surgeons to to operate when you have bright lights where we need to. Right. If the environment is quieter and um, and things, then I think I think that's not a a problem at all. Right. Right. I mean, obviously, you want anesthesia for your C-section, but there's definitely you know things that can be done to make you more comfortable. In my research study that we were required to do research in residency, mine was a randomized control trial looking at skin to skin in the operating room, which yeah. is something that's not offered to a lot of people. And I think it's more of an institutional logistics issue more than anything. And that was one 
huge speed bump that I encountered doing the study was buy-in from the anesthesiologists. They were not excited about having a second patient all up in their, you know, uh, area. Um, especially, you know, things can happen with C-sections and moms can get sick. And so, yeah, you definitely have to have buy-in from the entire team. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So talk to us about standardizing techniques for cesarean delivery. Like why, why does this matter? Why is it a thing? Well, this was kind of, again, the follow-up to uh, the paper from 2013, which I think you did your ground. I think that's probably the first time we met is, is yeah. when we were asking about this. And um, and so basically we broke down um, every step of the procedure and looked at um, all of the randomized trials, if there were any on each given step and determined is, is one, one way better than the other. So for example, um, the most visible thing, is there an optimal way to close the skin um, after you're done completing? And this would be important to patients. Like most of these steps are going to be. Or certain kind of surgeon stuff. But if we just talked about um, skin closure techniques, there's a million different ones, everything from staples to suture to glue um, to special sutures or staples that go underneath the skin. There's, Mm -hmm. there's a ton of, of data out there. So, um, is there one that um, is optimal for not just how it looks at the end, but risk of like infection or um, wound breakdown, separation, that type of thing? And so we looked at all of the randomized trials and tried to succinctly summarize them and, and say this is the best way. <laughs> that was seven years ago um, when we decided to try to update it. And so in that amount of time, just to put it in perspective, I think there was maybe over 170 randomized trials from 2013 to 2020 um, that we were thinking about basically rehashing the, yeah. the previous study. When we were going through all of this, I just couldn't help think but um, wonder, is there a better way to approach this? Is there kind of a different angle? Um you read the last trial, but does anybody really need another systematic review that's going to change a recommendation from B to A or, or whatever? So we kind of shift focus and, and made it more of a, a commentary. Um, it has all of the data uh, in it still, but um, we kind of promoted the idea that, hey, is there, since there's a jillion trials that this is an interest of mine and I still can't keep track of all of the data out there. Like, what are we doing kind of thing? And, uh, and so we proposed kind of um, a standardized approach and the benefit of standardizing the approach and made an argument for, for that. And so that's what it is. Okay. So just so you know, uh, these steps that you have outlined in here is this is exactly how I do my C-section. So I, I learned from the best, you guys. <laughs> but I mean, okay, for, for skin closure though, because somebody yeah. could talk to their doctor about sure. how do you close skin? Like if I have to have a repeat. So monofilament, subcuticular suture. Is that yeah, what you think? Suturing, uh, suturing the skin closed as opposed to staples, certainly. Um, some people, depending on um, BMI or the amount of, of tissue, is going to have, they're going to have a thicker closure. So um, there's, if there's a, a little bit more thickness there, we recommend. Uh, suturing the um, kind of the fat tissue and then closing the skin, um, those types of things, clear evidence to show that that is um, optimal in reducing infection and, and wound breakdown. Um, 
So that, that to me is like not a controversial one, but still one that we fight because people, there's a time element, right? Uh, it takes a little bit longer to, to close the skin with suture compared to staples and, and things like that. And again, we do what we're comfortable with a lot. And so. Yeah. And there's costs associated too. With some for of sure. Those things too. So, well, yeah. Dr. Dalkey, thank you for yeah. taking your time to come chat with us about all these different topics. Cause these are things that people, you know, patients are asking about and wondering about, and um, you're such a wealth of knowledge. I appreciate so. it. This was a lot of fun. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning into the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Please share this with all women who might be thinking about getting pregnant, got pregnant, um, their husbands. We talked about dads and advice for dads. So really, uh, I know this information will touch a lot of people. So make sure you guys like it, download, leave your comments, leave leave uh, any future questions. Maybe we'll have to have Dr. Dalkey back on. Uh, I think you know what we should do uh, is we should film a C-section or something uh, like that. What, what do you guys think? Thing, maybe <laughs> we have to find a really an, willing participant. An evidence-based one. <laughs> an evidence. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Dr. Dalkey can uh, commentate the entire thing, and uh, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. Thank have you, a good Jamie. day.